So um, <clears throat> I don't know if anyone is still holding out hope for a better summer, <laughs> but uh, I have bad news for you. It is fall. <laughs> it's not just fall in the calendar, it's fall outside. So you can see that. You look at the trees, you look at the termination dust up in the mountains, and you know it is fall. So uh, you can have a better summer, but it'll be about nine months from now. So. So fall is an interesting um, season. It's kind of a, um, a symbol of change, right? If you think about the different seasons, right, you can't really tell, you can't tell, you know, early winter from late winter, not, not very well. You can't tell early summer from late summer. But spring and, and fall are easier to tell. And spring, at least here in Alaska, you know the way spring works, right? You're looking at the trees and thinking, are there buds on those? And then like, boom, it explodes and suddenly everything's all green, right? But in the fall, there's this kind of slow, slow build or, or fall, I guess, whatever it is. So, so you see the colors change and so forth. You get the fireweed and all the other things. I, I don't know if you had fireweed. We didn't have hardly any over here. So, um, so you get those things. Um, the, the colors change. You get the leaves changing up on the trees and so forth. You can tell it's fall. So, so it's kind of a symbol of change because because you can actually see the way uh, it is doing this long slide into winter. And change is what I want to talk about today. Change is, is a, um, is inevitable, right? There, there are good changes and bad changes, but the one thing that's certain is there will be change. I don't know what it was like 500 years ago or something. Maybe people back then could pretty much have a stable life unless they happened to live in a particular place, but, but there wasn't much change. But today there's all kinds of change. Um, and and not just not just here. I was reading some statistics. They said that in the last thirty years, the number of people in this world who live in extreme poverty has uh, decreased by half. So extreme poverty is a little bit more than a dollar a day. And I can't imagine living on that. But the number has dropped in half. So there's people who are just in kind of poverty light or something like that. So so that's good news. The the COVID lockdowns and all of the the things that have flown out of that have um have uh, uh changed the slope of that particular trend, but it's still it's still going on and so the hope is that as as we get further and further away from COVID uh, that that trend will pick up again. Similarly, um, another another good change: uh, the number of women who die in childbirth has halved in the last thirty years, and so has the number of children under five who uh, children who die before they reach five. So, some really great changes. Uh, we can all be happy about those. But there's other changes as well. You know, uh, the changes that we deal with. Um, uh, a lot of them, like those other changes, di- driven by technology. And so there are problems with technology that, that, uh, you go to a, you go to a, a, fast food place and instead of having workers there, they've got the robotic kiosk telling you what to do. I saw an article, uh, just today talking about the New York subway is going to have a robotic cop. Um, so, uh, $9 an hour, which beats what the police charge. So, so all of these changes, they, they have a, a, a good aspect and they've got a bad aspect. So, um, so changes can, can be good or bad. Um, I was reading that, uh, the American Psychological Association says that the mental overload that comes from social media is, uh, bad for your health. So, um, your mental health. So 
Keep that in mind. So there's a lot of changes in society, some of them good, some of them bad, and the church is no exception. Churches used to look like this, right? This is the way churches used to look, and today they look like that, or maybe even like that. And because because our culture is becoming more multicultural, there are churches where they put the lyrics up in multiple languages every Sunday. So, so churches have changed, and even if your church hasn't changed like that, um, it's probably changed. Uh, if you had a choir, they probably don't wear robes as much as they used to. And if they, if you do have a choir, it's probably smaller than it used to be. Choirs have changed. Um, <clears throat> uh, some other ways that churches have changed, the dress code has changed. You can actually be a U.S. senator and get into most churches today because our dress codes have been relaxed so much. So, um, so, so, so we have that, uh, we don't have the organs, we've got the, the, um, you know, keyboards and so forth that, that have become more a part of our, our churches. So, so churches have changed and the question I want to talk about today is how does the church respond to change? How, how do we in the church respond to those changes out in society and here within the church? How do we respond to the changes? Because there's different ways we can do that. We can, we can either try to, uh, celebrate and, and hold on to what has been because there have been many good things in, in the world and in the church. And that's one possibility. The other thing we can do is we can say, well, change is inevitable. There's nothing we can do about it. The question is, can we prepare for it? What, what can we do? And so what we're going to see in our lesson today is that, uh, Elijah models how we can prepare for change before the change actually happens. So, so I want to look at this uh, text. So we've been uh, in this story about Elijah for the last, uh, I think this is the sixth week. We're going to wrap it up today. So we're, we're pretty much done with Elijah. I'm going to leave it on a, on a, on a cliffhanger. You get a chance to see what happens to his successor, Elisha, but, uh, we're, we're going to, we're going to wrap it up here with Elijah. So, so, um, Elijah is this prophet from the, 8th century BC. He's ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel. There were two kingdoms, one north and one south. south. All right, Bible scholars. All right, so so he's in he's in the northern kingdom, and uh, there there is a, a practice of Baal worship that's been introduced, and he challenges that. He challenges the king and the king's wife who introduced the Baal worship, and uh, he's been doing that. He got a little tired. We talked about that last week, the way that it kind of wore him out. And so he went to Mount Carmel, uh, Mount Horeb. God gave him kind of a pep talk and gave him a list of instructions. Go do these things. And so he's starting in on those things as we pick up the story here. So so we read, um, Elijah departed from there. And the, the first thing he does out of that list that God gave him is he found Elisha, Shaphat's son, uh, who is plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. So that means 12 people with plows and uh, two or more oxen in front of each plow. So he's with the last one. He's part of a big farming operation. So that's like 12 tractors. So imagine you know, what that would mean today. So uh, whatever that is, we don't know. Is he just a hired hand or is he part of the family? We don't know, but probably family because uh, what happens is he... Um, uh, Elijah comes up with him and he throws his coat on him. Now, those of us with older Bibles, we remember the phrase, he, he cast his mantle upon him. 
So that, that language about putting your mantle on somebody is what they're getting at here. Uh, the mantle, this coat, was, was a, uh, an outer garment. It was an all-purpose cloak. You could make a tent out of it in the sun. I mean, not a very big tent, but you could get some shade. You, you know, protect you in the, the rain. It was an all-purpose garment. And Elijah puts his on Elisha, which symbolizes that he is going to become his disciple. And we can say, well, why would that, what, what a weird symbol that would be. But um, Eli, Elisha understands it. So he says, let me go say bye to mom and dad first. So he says, let me kiss my father and mother. Then I will follow you. Elijah says, I'm not holding you back. And so Elisha turns back um, from following Elijah, takes the pair of oxen and slaughters them. Then with equipment from the oxen, the yoke and so forth, he boils the meat, gives it to the people and they eat it. So he is burning his bridges. He's saying, I'm done being a farmer. Um, I don't need those oxen anymore. I hope that they were his, <laughs> that he wasn't just an employee. But um, but everybody had a big party and then off he goes. So um, he's following e- Elijah. So he got up, followed Elisha and served him. And then we skip forward. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that happens um, because change is inevitable. Uh, King Ahab dies in a battle. His his first son, Ahaziah, replaces him. And then after that, uh, another son replaces him because the first one dies also. Uh, and so there's been change. Uh, he, um, Jezebel is no longer the queen. She's now the queen mother, and it looks like she's a... Um, power behind the throne for her son Joram. So so things have changed but but the the ministry continues. And so now we pick things up in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. So it says now the Lord was going to take Elijah up to heaven in a windstorm. And everybody seems to know that. I don't know how they all knew it. I don't know if Elijah found out from God and then he just told everybody, matter-of-factly. But however it turned out, everybody in this story seems to know that's what's going to take place. So uh, the Lord's going to take Elijah up to heaven in a windstorm, and Elijah and Elisha were leaving Gilgal. So they're in the center of the southern kingdom. They're going to head southeast toward um, toward the Jericho River, or the Jericho, the Jordan River. So um, Elijah says, stay here. The Lord sent me to Bethel, and... Elisha says, no, I'm going with you. So they go down to Bethel. There's a school, like I told the children, there's a school of prophets there, and um, they come out, and they also know that the Lord is taking um, Elijah away today. And so um, he says, uh, they say, do you know the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? And Elisha says, yeah, don't don't talk about it. I, you know, Don't remind me. And... Um, Elijah says, Elisha, stay here because the Lord sent me to Jericho. So they got to Bethel, and now he's saying, well, stop here. This is far enough. And Elisha says, no, I'm going with you. They go to Jericho. Another batch of prophets is at the school in Jericho. And so uh, they ask the same thing. Did you know the Lord's going to take your master away from you today? He says, yes, I know. Don't talk about it. And um, Elijah says, okay, well, stay here then, okay, because I'm going to go down to the to the Jordan River, the Lord has sent me. And Elisha says, as the Lord lives, and as you live, I won't leave you. So both of them went on together. And 50 members of the company of prophets, presumably the ones from Jericho, but we don't know, um, they go along and they stand at a distance. And um, uh, Elijah and Elisha stood beside the Jericho, the Jordan River, and Elijah performs his last miracle. 
So he takes his coat, rolls it up, and hits the water. The water's divided in two. And the significance of this is that Israel had done the same thing in reverse when they came from the wilderness into the promised land. So uh, uh, Joshua had ordered the priest to walk up to the water, and as their feet touched it, it would be separated. So so, Elijah is doing the same thing in reverse. Um, He's going the other direction. And uh, the significance of that people... So, whoop, I went too far. All right, so they crossed over on dry ground. So they crossed over. He's now on the east side of the Jordan River. He's um, outside of the promised land now, and and the Lord is going to pick him up here. So uh, what exactly the significance of of that is, I don't know, but it is he is tracing a route opposite from what the the people of God did centuries before when they came into the land. So, So there they are. They're on the east side of the Jordan River, and... Um, Elijah says to Elisha, is there anything I can do for you before I go? And Elisha says, let me have twice your spirit. Now, I don't like that translation. Most of uh, the Bibles I looked at said uh, something like a double portion. And the reason for that, in that culture, the way that you, um, the way you divided up an estate is you gave a double portion to the eldest heir. So the, you know, the, a bunch of kids, you just imagine there's one extra and you give that double portion to the, to the one kid and then everybody else gets a single portion. So he's saying, let me be your heir. Let me be your, your true disciple. Let me be the one who follows you. And Elijah says, you made a difficult request. And again, there's different theories about exactly, I mean, this is 2800 years ago, right? So we're kind of trying to figure out exactly what some things mean, but, um, he says, you made a difficult request. Maybe what he means is, I don't know if you've been watching, but my life has not been easy. And are you sure you, you want that, right? Maybe he means that, um, you know, my prophecy powers are waning. You know, I, we don't even know what, what he means, right? Is it hard for him? Uh, presumably, he doesn't think it's hard for God. So he's just saying it's a difficult request. And he says, but if you see me when I'm taken away, then yes, you can be my heir. And so they're walking along talking, and then a fiery chariot and fiery horses appeared and separated the two of them. That Elisha would not be separated from Elijah, except by God. So Elijah goes to heaven in a windstorm. And that's a trivia. You can, you can like win bets with this. Not that Christians ever bet. But, um, but you can, you can win trivia contests by saying, you know, how did, how did Elijah go to heaven? Because most people think, you know, in a chariot of fire, but it actually says in a windstorm. So for what, it, what it's worth, now you know some trivia. So what happens? He goes to heaven in a windstorm. Picture that if you can. I'm not sure exactly what that would look like. And Elisha is watching and he cries out, Oh, my father, my father, Israel's chariots and its riders. So he is grief struck because because he's been walking with this man who has been his mentor for however long. And also, he says, Israel's chariots and its riders. That's kind of like saying Israel's army and its air force. So the 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 thing that has made Israel capable of surviving in a, in a hostile world, you are that guy. Ahab and his, and his um, dynasty don't think so, but you are actually the guy who's been keeping Israel safe all this time. So he says, you know, how are we going to replace you? 
And when he could no longer see him, Elisha took hold of his clothes and ripped them in two. That's a sign of mourning. So he's in mourning now. He's sad that uh, that this has happened. But as the saying goes, no one can take your place, but somebody's going to get your job. And that's the place that Elisha finds himself in. He can't take the place of of um, Elijah, but Elijah has prepared him, and he has now taken He's passed his mantle on to his followers. So, so what is the lesson here? Now we're going to see in the in the next verse. If you go on, I'll, I'll tease it. He does pick up that mantle, right? It drops, and he picks it up and he takes on um, this role. But change is inevitable, right? There's there's change. We talked about technological change. There's all kinds of social change that happens in the world. You know, you just picture what life was like when when you were ten. Right, things are different now, except for Madeline. So, um, for the rest of us, things are really different here. Um, so, so think about those. Um, think about the way that the church has changed. There's all kinds of ways that that change has happened. And even if none of those happen, there's going to be demographic change because we get older. Right? Everybody who works in this church is going to come up to a day and say, "You know what? I'm not going to join that committee." I've got, you know, it's just too much for me to take on at this time. So we have change just in terms of who's working and who's doing what in the church. Change is inevitable. So the question is, what are we going to do in the face of change? And are we going to try to curate what is, what is and what is good? Or are we going to try to prepare for it by passing our mantle onto someone symbolically at first to say, here, we're trying to, to train you up so you can take this on officially. That's what, that's what Elijah does in the first reading, or the first part of the reading. And in the second part, he actually leaves his mantle for Elisha to pick up. So the question is, are we going to try to prepare the generation that comes after us, to prepare the people who can serve on our committees or whatever, whatever it is, whatever work we do in the church, whatever we do outside the church? Are we going to be curators of what is, or are we going to prepare our successors the way that Elijah did? I don't know. Um, just as a show of hands, did anyone else see the, the movie um, The Jesus Revolution earlier this year? So, all right, there, so there's some hands. I recommend it. Um, some of us lived through the uh, the Jesus Revolution. It was the, the flower power hippies and all that stuff in the... In the uh, um, uh, Jesus Freaks, the original Jesus Freaks um, from the 1970s, early 70s. And I wasn't a part of that. Margot told me that, that they, it was very much a part of what her church was, was doing. They, they weren't featured in the movie, but they were influenced by it, all these, all these hippies in Southern California. But, um, but uh, even, in, even in New Mexico, it trickled its way out there. And my brother, my older brother, became a Jesus Freak for a while. And... and um, uh, so, so I, I saw what that was like, and what what the movie captures is that there are churches that are on the leading edge of that movement, and there is this tension within the church: should we curate what was, or should we embrace what's going on and actually raise up a new generation? You know, are we going to pass our mantle on to that new generation? And that's what the the story of the movie is. And I really recommend it. It's um, it's a it's a it's a good movie and a really good story. So um, 
So I do recommend it. But that's the question that churches have to face is, is how do we, how do we deal with change? How do we do with, deal with societal change? How do we do, deal with, with demographic change? In the case of the Jesus revolution, they're talking about the way the world has changed. People are relating to God differently than they did a decade earlier. So the question is, okay, well, how are we going to do that? And the, so a lot of the things, we, we sang a lot of the songs that came from that era, from the, the second or the last two decades of the, um, of the 20th century. A lot of church music came from that period. Our, our little black hymnal is full of songs written as, as a response or as part of the Jesus Revolution. So that's what the church largely did. That's why there are churches with those light shows and so forth, because that movement has changed because people have said, we need to pick up the mantle. And to do that, we need to identify people. We need to help them take on the the job of being leaders in the Christian community. That's our role as the church, is to raise up Elisha's. And I'm happy to say this has been something that Jewel Lake Parish has been working on for years. We kind of had some setbacks uh, with COVID, but I think we're back working pretty pretty effectively now as a vitality team. And one of the things that really kind of we, we I, I would say, lucked into, but God provided, is this ability to yoke with the other church, uh, Trinity Church, so that we can actually hire somebody, as, as uh, Janelle mentioned. We can hire somebody who can specifically concentrate on that aspect of our ministry, of actually trying to raise up that generation of Elishas. So I'm really happy we've been able to do that. We're, we're moving along on that. But, but churches, churches sometimes think that they shouldn't change because God doesn't change. But that is precisely why churches need to change, because God doesn't change. And in a world that changes... People deserve to know the good news about Jesus. And so in order to reach them, the church has to actually change. And whether it wants to or not, it's going to. Because people stop volunteering. They, they get too old, they die. Some of them go to heaven in a chariot, or in a whirlwind, excuse me. So, so what can we do? What can, what can you do to help raise up a generation of followers to find that Elisha, to find that company of prophets in Bethel or Jericho to support them as they begin taking on their own mantle. That's the calling of this church, and I'm glad to say we're making some progress. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we, we love you, and we know you love us, but we know you also love people who have not appeared yet, not appeared in our churches, may not be born yet. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to to be like Elijah, to prepare and to give leadership roles to the generation that succeeds us so that they, in turn, can reach that generation those generations that follow them. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.